So, good morning, everybody. I have a dilemma. <clears throat> I'm kind of caught between three ways of doing this reflection. One is to <clears throat> just give you a soothing practice to get calm and peaceful and see more clearly. The other one is to speak, mix it with a bit of Dharma, kind of teachings. And the third one is just to talk to you about seeing the queen in the queen's garden of Buckingham Palace yesterday. So the queen can be just put aside. It's not a big problem. <laughs> so we'll see what happens. Just watching the dilemma. See what happened. She might be thrown into it from time to time, but <laughs> so we're coming to the middle of our meditation retreat, close to the end, middle to close to the end, and we can just appreciate so much this time which for me is very special because I don't usually sit with Ajahn Suchitu and Ajahn Amaru and Ajahn Karuniku and Ajahn Chandasri all together. It reminds me of the day, the early days at Chittast, a very special time. And so I'm sure all of us have a little story about this time, but that's a very heartwarming memory for me, something very special. And Lumpu, of course, being here. And so I just uh, can just feel this beautiful, special atmosphere right now with so many of you, with such a kind of love for Lumpu, love for what he has offered to us. And uh, just see the, the beautiful result I see in my spiritual uh, brothers and sisters of this uh, Lay, uh, and Lay as well. Um, you know, in in the, this span of time, this last forty decades, forty yeah, five four decades, sorry, forty years, and so it's just um, also something I notice, just the beautiful sense of um, the the fruits of people practicing over so many years, and uh, also, and so not so many years as well. So, <clears throat> I think it really brings um, a sense of um, confidence in our, our practice. You know, sometimes we don't feel so confident in our practice, but then you can see that it's very doable and very worth doing. And so the thing we don't talk often about, we have this moment when we can see clearly how it's worth doing and how wonderful it is and how how we can live without it, you know. And then perhaps just as you feel now or you have felt in the past, there's also the aspect of practice which is about sustaining and going through the um, period when the mind is actually 
um, churning, <laughs> it's, it's washing. <laughs> and uh, before it gets really cleaned out and <laughs> discarded, it, it takes a while to understand why I'm here, what am I doing, or is my practice working? <laughs> when you suddenly fill up with, filled up with anger or confusion or doubts or worries, or not working, it's not working. Or maybe I should be doing something else. I need another method, another another technique. And this is a, a pet subject for me, I have to say. How we can be obsessed with technique and method and actually miss the point of the path by just um, you know, feeling that there's something wrong constantly and I've got to fix it constantly and get more stressed out as a meditator than you did before you started meditating. So, just a, a, you know, something that I've noticed, it's easy to do. So, that's why I'm not so... methods and techniques and so on are very, very useful to you know build up the strengths and the skills that are needed for um, realization of Dhamma. And at the same time, there's a part that's not always balanced, is a part where we let things be and listen. I just love the word of Lumpur, listening. It has such a deep resonance. It's so simple, but it's not easy to do, as you probably have noticed during this time. The mind trying to find the best way to practice, the mind trying to remember the good time, the mind trying to improve on itself, and so on. So instead of listening to all these voices and these feelings that arise out of these voices. So this is, um, I'm very glad Lumpo is, is, um, is amongst ourselves because um, we have very good teacher, very good practitioner and teachers around us. And I, you know, and Lumpu is one of them. But there is something about Lumpu that personally resonates with me very deeply. It's non-doing, which we, when I, I hear him teach, teach is a non-doing that manifests also the doing that needs to be done. It's not just non-doing and doing nothing. It's non-doing means um, a counterbalance to this tendency to want to f control and fix and get something we knew already that's going to make us feel comfortable. Now I can feel peace. Ah, oh, wait. Well, yeah, I can feel peace now. Ah, oh, okay. That's really, I've been looking for that for a long time. And peace is, you know, is transient. It go, comes and goes. So, um, I always I like to bring the dimension that uh, we had Ajahn Sumedhu talk, you know, regularly every night. This aspect of just the do, the non-doing doing of awareness, you could say, <laughs> the part of us that is doing something without me, <laughs> without having to do anything. So that's the hardest part. That's the part that takes, you know, time to understand. <clears throat> and we meet that in our own formal practice 
just to let things settle. And uh, by now I'm sure your mind has come to a place of greater quietness than, than it had than when you started. So I don't think you need a lot of uh, encouragement in a way to continue in that direction. And as I was reflecting on this idea of giving a reflection, um, I remember the reflection of um, the early years of Ajahn Sumedho on the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. There was a lot of, you know, very frequent uh, on retreat, particularly on the, this three aspect of the refuges, three refuges. And um, I find it very helpful because, in a way, you could say there are three, but there are also one. They all basically the mind itself and the quality of the mind. So we talk of the awareness as being like the Buddha. Many people have different, many teachers have different way of saying the same thing. But this refuge of awareness is something that is uh, experienced as the most precious jewel we have in this human life. There's nothing more vital than discovering that we can be aware of the world we create. Rather than blinded, blind or constantly reactive, upset, miserable, depressed, and helpless. So, um, this is the most precious, precious thing we have in our, the duration of our life. In this present moment, we are aware, and you can you can easily recognize when you're not aware. Is when you are running away with your thoughts, regard, uh, taking you into the future, or bringing you back into the past, or or getting you stuck on a particular unpleasant feeling, or that you want to get rid of. So that's doubly stuck, and then you want to get rid of, of remembering that you should not be stuck. <laughs> the triple layer, triple layer of dukkha. So, as you are cultivating, making much of this quality of listening. Because awareness is not something we can see or we can speak of, even though we try to make it something. But really, you can only use word that brings you to awareness, 
rather than defining awareness. So things like listening, seeing, knowing. I mean, listening is probably the most practical one. To listen inwardly to, if some of you have studied Buddhism, you know, to the five, what we call the five khandhas. And the listening itself is already a means, a skillful means to help the mind to focus in the present. <clears throat> and to be able to simplify itself. You just listen to the sound of your body, the sound of your mind, the sound of your feeling, inverted comma. How do they resonate in you? You can listen to the resonance of your mind and body. And um, so often the question, most common question I hear is, shall I do, you know, how much do I need to concentrate to do vipassana or listening to my mind and body or seeing my mind and body and knowing anicca dukkha anatta? How much do I need concentration? How much concentration do I need? How much... You need you need you need as much concentration as a mind, so that the mind can be able to can can be able to see and to and to see you have to have a certain degree of stillness, just like often the mind is compared to a pond or a lake. If you want to see really what's going on below the water. You have to be very still, not just your attention, but also the water itself has to kind of stop being stirred up by winds and uh, elements. So, how do we calm the mind down to be able to see clearly? The encouragement I, I had have had over the years is you can you can calm the mind down by using, for example, the object of meditation on the breath, natural breath, or you can use the sound of silence or the sensation of the body sitting. A global sensation of just sitting. And the most important aspect of calming the mind down is, is to do with just not moving with the activity of your mind, not moving, just you listen, you observe, you watch, you hear, you feel, but there is a part of you that's just very still already. Awareness gives a sense of stillness, presence, now, nowness. 
here now. Not something in the future, not something in the past. Now. So this awareness sounds very kind of simple at some level. Yes, I am aware of this, I'm aware of that, but to keep sustaining that refuge without creating tension or a sense of me being aware to the me being um, confused or whatever state of mind you're going, is, is passing through your consciousness. So you have to basically, from the beginning of the practice, right from the beginning, it's important to intend, as well as listening, you intend to approach this exploration with gentleness. doesn't mean laziness, it doesn't mean feeling cold about it or not so interested. A gentle approach. Some of you maybe have done Aikido, you know, and you know how you push and you let the opponent just kind of fall sideways. You don't attack. Just like that in the mind, you can feel all kinds of things arising and you just don't move with it. And it's the magic of the mind is that everything is anicca, everything changes all the time. You want to, to know the true magic of the mind is <laughs> that nothing stays for more than a few seconds. And then, of course, having said that, then we also encounter the stuff of the mind that last a lot more than a few seconds, as you know, can last for days, months, years sometimes. And that can be interpreted in many ways or translated in many ways. Unfortunately, without the Dhamma, without the, the right understanding, then you can easily interpret things incorrectly. But before I continue on that, I just want to go back to the intention, to the intention to be really patient with what's happening in you right now. The intention to be kind. Remembering what the Buddha says about this is not me, this is not mine. Why would you be unkind to something that has nothing to do with you, arising and passing away. don't need to fight. You only fight because we identify. That's a sign. When we struggle because we just think it's mine, my anger, my inability to meditate, and as you listen silently with a kind approach and gentle, then I still remember, you know, the um, the way when Lumpo said once, Ajahn Samedha said once, you know, you allow the Dhamma to 
rise up, rouses in you, trying to get your big boots in and try to dig it out. And some people, it works, maybe, that kind of approach. It's not one way. But I like the idea of allowing the Dhamma to rise into our heart. And that, for me, is not just simple words. They also point to the fact that the Dharma can arise in my heart, the truth can arise in my heart without me. Such a relief. I don't have to dig it out. It arises in my mind as I continue to silently let the mind probe itself without me having to do something that may not be appropriate at the time. It's an idea, maybe an idea of what we should do. I remember when I was in Thailand, practicing in Thailand, and uh, reading some, you know, practicing in the forest, reading some of the teachings of the well-known masters of the forest tradition, and I was often, you know, surprised how little we make of this in the West when we study meditation. This um, notion of just before you start meditating, they, you know, they, you're encouraged to take the precepts and some teachers will encourage you to take the precepts and to recollect all the good things about our life. Not focus on, I can't do it, I'm terrible, I'm a hopeless meditator, i am never made it, can't still still yet. Can't, I still I got anger and get frustrated when for minor things and you know <laughs> which is we're very good at doing that, don't we? There's something about the modern psychology. I don't know. The, we discover how much we quite like to criticize ourselves. Quite enjoy it. Some people turns into a habit. Not a particularly skillful habit, but for a long time I remember giving going to see Achen Sumedho and sort of boring him with 20 minutes of tirades of negativity and criticism about myself. And he used to look at me really bewildered. And now, I mean, if I did that, I would really have a sense that I'm just swallowing, swallowing poison. That's what, it, that's what it's come to for me. So it's not, I just tell you, it's not worth dwelling on this negative mind. No matter how assertive it gets or how convincing. No, it's not worth it. It's a waste of time. But it's important to see it. On another hand, it's important to be aware when it's present. But don't believe it, you know. So just to recollect the good things of our life, it's just, has affected the mind in a good way. 
It's like a it's like a nourishment. It's not liberation. You might not realize the Dhamma through this, but at least you give your mind good food, and good food makes your mind strong, whether it's practice of meditation or filling the mind with metta, with loving kindness, with positive aspect of our life, not creating them. It's not like wishful thinking or positive brainwash. Just recollecting the good things, remembering the good moments of our life, what we did kindly. You know? And we don't have to trumpet it to the whole, you know, out through the whole, the whole world. We don't have to tell the whole world but the little small things that we do and that we feel really good about ourselves. And so just to dwell more carefully towards recollecting the good. And I noticed in my experience is that set the mind in a way that it feels better, it's transient, yes, depending on the recollection, it's not like permanent, but what we do usually, we, you know, we, we can spend hours just churning negative thoughts without any qualms. <laughs> it was, I remember reading a teaching of Kinanayon, uh, a very famous teacher, women teacher from Thailand. And she made me laugh a lot when she was saying to her student, you know, you teach people to sort of focus on their breath for a few minutes, you know. And within a few minutes, it, you know, they kind of panic, can't do it, can't do it, it's not possible. But then, they themselves focus on their unskillful mind, unskillful thoughts, negative tendency, and so on, without any qualms. For hours, days, years, they don't have any problem just focusing on the most miserable train of thoughts, nasty feeling about their neighbors, their dogs, their parents, their family, whatever, with not an iota of doubts that it's okay. Ask them to do Anapanasati for 10 minutes. Oh no, I can't do that. So, this is called illusion, by the way, just in case you hadn't had a word for it. It's called avidya, you know, we just don't know. We don't know the mind, we don't know the effect of the mind, we don't know we don't know how a poor body does get deeply affected by the way we think and feel and so on. And so it's really worth exploring those aspects of our life because sometimes we feel really um, at our wits' end, and what to do with ourselves, with life, with others, and so on. But when we can be our own physician, then it's a great relief, because really the world is a mad place. The world outside, the world inside, I think some of us have seen it long enough to know that it's not reliable, 
is not something that's worth to rely on because it's very fleeting it's, and it's caught up with all kinds of unskillful desires and so on, good and bad. Not like all bad, it's just good as well. But basically, it's unreliable. And to make something reliable, you have to, in a way, it has to be part of you. Reliability of our mind will lies very much into the, the fact that we can be aware, we can know what's going on, we can know how to re, rest, restrain ourselves, we can see when we need to act, when we don't need to act, we can see when our mind is turning into a ball of depression, and we can see it and just let it go. We can learn how to let it go. Maybe it might take a few days. Maybe it might take a few weeks. But we need the mind with a greater correctness. We don't have to constantly be befuddled with our, you know, our experience of the chitta. In case you are not English, befuddled, I think, I mean, just confused. So, when Kinanayan was teaching this to her student, you know, it made me laugh because it's so true. It's like the truth is always humorous in a way because it's like we're in front of our, it's right in front of our nose, but we don't see it. Suddenly they say, this, Somebody said, this is like this, and you say, oh my God, I've been, I've been looking at this for 50 years, didn't see it, or 20 years, or... And having an approach of kindness as we are establishing mindfulness in ourselves is not a luxury, it's not something extra. We are dealing with forces in our mind which are very powerful. So this act of kindness, this attitude, approach of gentleness, is this ability to receive these forces without um, fighting without, you know, and when I say powerful forces, I don't mean something like demons, I mean, you know, I wouldn't call them demons yet, but just like habits, strong habits. So the art of listening kindly is a great art. And eventually you can feel that when the mind is not touched for a little while, when the mind is left alone for a little while, then the mind really naturally comes down and, I'm not saying it does every time, but it can actually become by itself, and you can feel the sense of unification and brightness in the heart something that comes when the mind is not constantly agitated by our desire to get rid of things, or our desire to, to attach, to want to make more of something, to get more of 
the pleasant, a pleasant feeling of that we can get in our meditation, and when the mind is left alone, it's interesting. You discover that truly, you know, the dust settle, and you're left with quite a you know sense of peace, sense of clarity. And you can see more, and you have a chance to to see more profoundly the, the what characterize our experience most profoundly is the fact that they are changing. They are nature. They are inside, you know, against a mind that is not confused and agitated. A mind that is at peace with itself. You can feel this, this, this thing crossing the mind. Oh, just like old bones, you know, it's like old carcasses passing through. Memories. I'm not saying that's bad. But it's like memories and all kinds of things. If you get too interested in these things, then you're back onto the wheel. So in med- meditation requires a certain amount of relinquishment. You know, are you determined just to see things as they are? Or do you want to enter your stories and start making a big deal about it? We're free, we can do what we want. Nobody is pushing us to be a Buddhist. And nobody is pushing us to believe what the Buddha says, but at some point the relinquishment that is necessary to not be so, um, you know, to, to, to move away from the tendency to reinforce the sense of self, me, my stories, my past, my future. In meditation we Doing what's happening is the opposite. We just observe, listen, and we stop interfering with the mind for the time being. There's many kind of meditation, but for this type of meditation, we stop interfering. Like Ajahn Shah used this image of the cobra. You know, the mind is like a cobra. Compare that because in Thailand there's plenty of cobras. I don't know what you will see in England, but <laughs> and so you can watch the cobra if you don't interfere with them. They may slide by you, but don't maybe they don't bite you. They don't they don't harm you. And in the same way, he was comparing the mind. If you don't touch the mind, it won't, it won't make you suffer. That is the part of meditation that we learn in our daily practice. That's the most difficult thing, you know, is how to live with a mind that is changing and whose has a great power to make us suffer 
and happy, both, has great power to make us project things that do not exist, interpret things in a wrong way. So it takes a huge amount of patience just to read a deluded mind for years and still continue training it without being discouraged, without losing heart. So this is what we are learning through our regular commitment to this path. And I like to dedicate this reflection to the Queen of England and her family. May she be well, healthy, happy, and continue to receive three times a year 8,000 people and offer them loads of sandwiches and cakes. And everybody seems to be glad to be where they are on that day. So, okay. We can just sit just about two minutes before 8.15, no, 9.15. I can hold it, I held it till the last minute. <laughs> Felt a sense of gratitude, you know, for what she was doing yesterday. It was very nice, a nice atmosphere. And very, lots of kindness all around. So, you can just stay for the last couple of minutes, just quiet. <laughs> 